good morning again. Retrograde amnesia. That's what we're going to talk about today. Retrograde amnesia. It's a term for a complete loss of the memory of who you are. All of your experiences disappear. It is a complete loss of personal identity. Whether you know the term or not, you have likely seen this before in TV shows and in movies. The plot is one we know. Somebody appears in a certain town or washes up, something's happened to them. They have no idea who they are, and the plot thickens, and everybody scurries around and tries to figure out who this person is. And in the end, they usually find their real identity. It's a real condition, actually. It's a very rare condition, but it's a real condition. But many who profess to be Christians, who claim to be saved because they believe in Jesus, they suffer from spiritual amnesia. They kind of know who they are, but in their daily life, Christ is forgotten. He does not drive their decisions. Their life at best demonstrates a certain type of confusion. They will profess one thing. They will say one thing, particularly on a Sunday morning. But their life evidences something completely different, such that the world isn't really sure who they are. And they don't know who they are. And they refuse to turn to the only source of truth that can help them solve the great mystery of why they're here and where they find their identity. And of course, that is the Bible. But far too many love the disease and they hate the remedy because the cure is relatively simple. It is repentance. It is turning from sin. It is having faith in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh and submitting to the Lord Jesus in all of life. Retrograde amnesia, the stuff you see in the movies, it has no known cure in the real world. But spiritual amnesia does not need to be a permanent condition. There is a very simple cure, but it is often applied by the great physician only after we come to a complete end in ourselves, right? only after we're in utter despair, only after we suffer, only after we realize that we're not in control that we can't get ourselves back out of these things. When our pride melts and turns into true humility. The cure, of course, is the gospel, but it comes in a simpler package that just has a two-word name. But God. But God. That is where we find our identity. Desiring God Ministries has this very helpful explanation of a Christian identity. It says, Christian selfhood is not defined in terms of who we are in and of ourselves. We don't set that identity. Our identity is defined in terms of what God does to us and the relationship He creates with us and the destiny that He appoints for us. God made us for a reason. They say God made us who we are so we could make known to everyone else who He is, right? That's why we serve as ambassadors of Christ. We should never forget our identity in Christ. It should guide everything we do. It should guide even who we associate with and who we seek advice from. And as we return to Ruth this morning, what we're going to see is one of God's people seems to have suffered from spiritual amnesia. She seems to have lost her identity, at least temporarily. But God, but God, His will is always accomplished. He never leaves or forsakes His people. And we see this this morning, but God, remember that God 
is indeed the main character in the book of Ruth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word this morning, we're grateful that you have chosen to speak to us, to give us real history, to reveal in even these small ways the truth that you are always at work, that your providence guides and uses all situations in life, even our bad decisions, to achieve your purposes for us. We are grateful for that, Lord, and we pray that you would help us see this truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this morning we continue our journey through the book of Ruth. We're going a little slow in the first part of it here. But last week we needed to set the stage, and we set the stage for the context of the book of Ruth. The events take place during a period of great apostasy. There's false religious teaching, if there's any teaching at all, that is prevalent, and it is coming from the people who are supposed to know. It'd be like today, looking and finding anyone with the title pastor or whatever else they call themselves on YouTube. They had Levites, but the Levites didn't teach them well. So the period was characterized by a great ignorance of Scripture, of God's Word and what He demanded. And that led to a society completely and utterly in chaos and full of moral depravity. It ended with everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In short, the situation is much like we see in America in the Western church in 2022. But what we saw in that too is that there was a period of great suffering brought upon the people. A famine in the land. No food. And you might have expected this to lead to repentance on behalf of individuals in the nation, but instead we saw something different. Elimelech takes matters into his own hands. He leaves the promised land, the place that he was called by God to dwell, and he moves his family to Moab to find food. And once there, it became easy to just go with the flow, to just remain there. It seemed things were going just fine. And we took from this that life just happens to us if we're not careful, if we're not intentional about our mission to follow Jesus Christ, we very quickly forget our identity. You see that in the Western world. I have no doubt on a beautiful day, and we'll see it more in spring and summer, that the parks and the trails and the soccer fields and everything else will be full on Sunday mornings. But the churches will be kind of empty until winter comes again. It's easy to just go with the flow in a time of blessing. It becomes much harder in a time of suffering. When the planes hit the World Trade Centers, churches saw record attendance for the next couple weeks. And that's kind of what we're going to see. Suffering does something. But we live in a world that has a shrinking number of Bereans. Bereans are those mentioned in Acts 17.11 who searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They looked to God to see if these things that they were hearing were true. But sin makes us inherently lazy. And that is warned against in the Proverbs. We're just lazy. It's easy to just go with the flow. And so many in Many around us, we know they will not seek comfort in Scripture. They will not work through the Bible, but they will search for a YouTuber or a blogger who will soothe their conscience, who will soothe their passive lifestyle, tell them they're good where they're at with all kinds of false claims about who God is and what His Word actually says to us. It's just very easy to remain in sin. And we closed last week with Elimelech 
than dying in Moab, far away from his people. And as we did, the narrator of Ruth pointed us toward Naomi, as she now appears to be the main character for just a moment. And she has two sons, and she faces a big choice. And here is where I say it appears she is having an identity crisis. Who is she? This woman who lives in Moab with two boys. Is Naomi's identity first and foremost that of all Israelites? Is she a follower of Yahweh? Is she longing to get back to her people into the promised land? Or is her identity caught up in something else? Our text this morning is verses 4 through 7. Let's read them now. Now these, Naomi's sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was, with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, if you knew nothing else but these verses, it sounds tragic, certainly the way it starts, but it ends with this great promise. They're on a journey now, back to the promised land. But I want to jump back just for a moment to verse 3, where we closed last week. And it reads, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, And she was left with her two sons. I want you to see here, and we mentioned it briefly, that Naomi is now identified as the leader of that family. She is the matriarch, right? Elimelech is her husband. The sons are her sons. And if she had, if she she was not complicit, if she had no fault whatsoever in leaving the promised land, and the text doesn't tell us whether she did, but if she just followed her husband, to Moab, she now faces a choice. She has the opportunity to identify herself with God and leave for the promised land, or she can stay. She can stay in Moab. And Naomi, no doubt, at that time, was grieving the loss of her husband. We can't lose sight of that fact. But we also know that she knows what James 1.17 tells us, that every good gift and every perfect gift is above, coming down from the Father of lights. We know she knows this, because as we go through Ruth, we will see her repeatedly attribute both the good and the bad in her life to acts of God. So she had a choice. Would she go and seek wives for her sons among the Israelites, among God's chosen people, or remain in Moab? And we know the answer, and this is where our verses pick up. Verse 4, Naomi's sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. This actually opens with great joy and promise. They have wives, they have marriages, there will be children in the future. The progeny of Elimelech will continue on, and Naomi as a widow would be provided for by this wonderful and growing family. And there were weddings And weddings were celebrated then, maybe more so than they're even celebrated now. It was an exciting time. But as we read this, there should be this underlying discomfort. Something's not quite right with this statement. It's like that odd feeling when the Holy Spirit is prompting your conscience. You may not technically be in or know that you are in sin. 
But you know something isn't right. You're listening to something. You're looking at something. You're someplace where you know that you just shouldn't be. You're around people and think, I should leave, but I want to stay. Something's not right. You're too close to the edge. You're letting your guard down. You know in that moment you are not acting to honor God and represent Christ to the lost world. That's the kind of uneasiness we should see here because we see here that Naomi didn't go back to Israel. She was an Israelite, but she sought wives for her sons in Moab, and they took Moabite wives. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky, because we went through all of the problems with them going to Moab last week. Elimelech should never have taken his family there. But we actually said nothing about taking Moabite wives. So what do you think? Is it a good thing? Is this a blessing from God? We might imagine Naomi asking herself that same question. What do you think? And she might have asked those around her, but the ones around her were not followers of God. They were Moabites. They followed a demon, a false god in Chemosh. But this is unfortunately the way most of our discussions actually begin when we face difficult challenges in life. When in doubt of anything, whether it's a life choice, a biblical matter, a theological matter, we too often say, well, what do you think? How do you feel like God would respond? Do you feel like he would be happy with this? And we should actually know better. Right? We should never be looking at that. We must get in the habit of saying or asking, what does God say? Has he spoken on this matter? How can we honor him? Who can we ask that we know is immersed in scripture and prayer? Where can I find these people? And I would say, look around you. Here they should be. Those are the questions that we should ask, and those types of questions would have helped Naomi. She likely didn't have the options that we do. But if she knew this much, and we can't be sure that she did, she may believe, actually, that she discovered a gray area in Scripture. This is a gray area. And we love gray areas in our society. We love them. We love gray areas more than we love any verse in the Bible. If you look around, we love to think we found a gray area on which God has not spoken. And this happens all the time. I could give lots of examples, but let me give you two. One is when I served with the church in Washington, leading part of men's ministry. And Washington State passed a law, and they legalized marijuana. And so suddenly you had men coming into the church asking repeatedly, well, is this okay now? Because the, the government says it's okay, does God say it's okay? The ones who really, really wanted to numb themselves to the world by the use of drugs, they would come saying something a little bit different. I looked in the Bible, and it never uses the word pot or marijuana. So it must be okay. And it was very interesting to argue with them about this. But we have lots of other examples. We spent a whole sermon on one a few weeks back, church membership. We addressed this. We went through the Bible on it. And this is an area where many people get very complacent and comfortable in their disobedience. They don't see the word member. They think it's a gray area. And it's absolutely not. We won't dive into it, but go back and listen. 
Gray areas are those areas we love. Society loves them. Proclaiming a gray area, though, and keep this in mind, it is believing that God has no view on this matter. No view whatsoever because you haven't found a particular word used in Scripture. So then you declare, well, that is then outside the dominion of God. He's sovereign on all things. He has not used the right word that I have found. And so we don't bring anything else in Scripture to bear on the matter. We get to decide. We get to decide what's pleasing to God. And if you watch, isn't it amazing what people ultimately decide? They decide that what they want or what the easiest course of action is for them in their life that involves the least amount of suffering, our easiest path, that that is what God would want. That's always what God seems to want, is what I want. That is an issue. Here's the gray area that, that Naomi faced. The Bible nowhere prohibits Israelites from marrying Moabites. It nowhere prohibits this. And for many, that would be just the end of the matter. They could say, well, Naomi was right to stay. The boys should be free to marry Moabite wives. It never says that. Someone might chime in from the side, don't you remember what the Moabites did? In Numbers 25, it was during the period our ancestors wandered in the desert, a punishment from God. And we read in Numbers 25, 1 through 3, While the Israelites lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel, Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Well, how, how might she respond to that? How would we? We're good at this in the modern church. We're good at a response like this. That was then. This is now. That was a long time ago when the Israelites were wandering around. We have a new culture. We have a better understanding of the Moabites. This is a much more enlightened time. Look, we've gotten food from them during the famine. Have you met many Moabites? They're really nice people. And they really do love Chemosh, their God. It must be okay, because the Bible still does not say it's prohibited. And you can imagine how that thought process works, because we do it and we see others do it, others who claim to follow Christ. They have just enough Bible knowledge to be able to do a word search and say it's not there, but they don't have enough discernment to read the rest of Scripture to see God's greater designs and to apply His will to every situation in life. Now, Romans 12.2 cautions us this way. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's more than just looking for words and lists. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. You may discern, you may understand, you may figure out what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We always have to remember, we're not reading Scripture to find the supposed loopholes that allow us to do what we want to do, but to understand God. Who is He? What is His nature? What is His will? And ultimately to live our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, a form of our spiritual worship, as you'd read in Romans 12.1. But nonetheless, technically, technically speaking, Naomi may have been okay. Maybe. Deuteronomy 7 is where you find a list of tribes 
that the Israelites are not permitted to intermarry with. And the Moabites are certainly not listed. You can dig your heels in. You can say, this indeed is a word from God that it's okay. And in fact, this is what people do. They can look at their situation. And Naomi can look at hers and say, if God didn't want this to happen, there would be no wives. But he has blessed this decision. The wives are provided. We are enjoying life. So surely this must be the will of God. Now, I will note, God always accomplishes his will. He does that even through the sinful actions and sinful decisions of his people. And we'll see that through the book of Ruth. He does that very thing. But the reason that this whole thing should make a follower of Christ very uncomfortable, and this line of reasoning should make us very uncomfortable, is God does not give us in the Bible these lists, prescriptive lists of do's and don'ts, and if we just tick these boxes, we're all good. And there is no comprehensive list of sin. They're all a little different. We gather what God wants and who he is, but he doesn't just give us a list. We could make the Bible just two pages and just have God tell us, do these things, you're saved. Do these things, you're not saved. And human nature is such that we would do those and then live our lives probably like pagans the rest of the time because that's our nature. But God doesn't do that. God explains why. He explains why. He's revealing his character and his nature to us. And in this example of intermarriage and the prohibition against intermarriage, he actually explains why. In Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4, he says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me, to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. And it's not long before we see this, just four generations later, where King Solomon sins greatly against God after all of his blessings, taking wives from many tribes, some from Moab, and you read in 1 Kings 11.7, then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. This would be the beginning of the downfall of Solomon and the nation being torn in two. God is giving rules to us to follow in the Bible, not just for the sake of following rules. He is explaining who he is because he is interested in protecting our souls. Our God is a jealous God. He is jealous for his own glory, for his own goodness, for his own sovereignty, for his own worship. And you see this right in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. And then in Exodus 24, the next commandment, he prohibits any image, any likeness of any created thing. You cannot do this, he says, because you will be tempted to bow the knee, to genuflect, to have these images in your head when you're praying to the one true living God. No, no images. No images. No matter who you think it represents. No matter who you think it gives honor to. And he says, why? He says, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. He will not share his place on the throne with any idol we create, any false god, any idea that we begin to worship. And he jealously guards his people. And he always gives us guidance in all of life. That's why you need to search all of the scriptures. 
You need to be a Berean. The Moabites worshipped Chemosh. And God was protecting his people from this very thing. It's the same reason under the new covenant sealed with Christ's blood that believers, those who follow Jesus Christ, are not permitted to marry unbelievers. Or 2 Corinthians 6.14. You see, God does not change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8 and James 1.17. But there is one more for Naomi. Deuteronomy 23, 3-6. We won't read the whole thing. We read it last week. But it begins this way. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. That seems really harsh if you think about it. This is a no kids allowed, right? Ten generations later. You're out. Your parents were Moabites. But it's not harsh. It's harsh to us because we downplay God's holiness. We do not know God. We downplay His holiness and we lift up human goodness. We think we're far better than we are. And we always want to pretend that God can somehow, in His perfect holiness, overlook. And in fact, He will overlook our sin and rebellion. And we justify this in our head because we see sin and rebellion, but we don't see lightning bolts coming out of the sky immediately striking people dead. So it's easy to become complacent. But we never seem to comprehend how evil unfaithfulness is against a perfectly holy God. Nonetheless, a God who sent His own Son to save us. There is really no gray area here if you apply Scripture. And I would warn you, it is a great fallacy to go after and do word searches and then determine that since you don't find a particular word, God has not spoken on the matter and you can go your own way. It is not the way God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. Now, all of this should have made Naomi really uncomfortable if she knew the God she belonged to. And we can only cut her a little slack here because we remember how this all started. It was in the days that the judges ruled. It would have been extraordinarily difficult to find a person in Israel at that time who had been taught well. Instead, these people could fill their head with weak teaching, misleading notions of God, and false teaching from the Levites who were in it for their own gain. And it would permit them to justify just about any type of behavior. Just like today. Just like today. There's almost no difference in 3,000 years here. But notwithstanding all of that, Naomi is still living with two sons who just got married. And the marriages would be a joyous occasion for Naomi because of the children. That was what everybody was looking forward to. The children. The family line would continue. There would be provision for her as a widow. But we know that's not to be. Tragedy strikes, verse 5. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. 10 years. No children. No family blessing. Just more death, more discouragement, more disappointment. Greater despair. Where was God? Where was God in this? If we were in Naomi's shoes, we would be asking that. You know people who suffer, who ask that. Where was God in this? God left me. He left me alone. Where was He in this time I suffered? We're quick to acknowledge God's work when things are going well. 
We can only imagine that Naomi was very happy about the wives that were given to her sons. Life seemed to be going very well. But she would have likely felt completely abandoned as she looked at her fate. There is no God here. He has left me because of this great hardship I now suffer. But she's wrong and we would be wrong to think that same thing. He's always there. He's always at work. In many respects, and I really want to title the whole series in Ruth with this, Caution, God at work. Right? Like the road signs that say caution, men at work. Caution, God at work. He's always at work. But not always in the way we want him to work in our lives. But he is always at work. Human nature seems to only recognize God at work when we're experiencing blessings in life. But he is most definitely at work in human suffering. He always works out his redemptive plan. Naomi, by her complacency, she lost her focus on God and, her, and his will for her to live an obedient life. And now the deaths of her family and isolation in Moab, away from God's people, away from any support she could receive in the promised land, Naomi has lost her identity. And you see it right here in this verse. Listen to the way that the narrator talks about Naomi. Go back to verse 2. And he refers to her. He identifies her by name. It's Naomi. Verse 3. It's Naomi. He makes it appear that she is the main character in the story. But after all the death, after she is left destitute, how does verse 5 refer to her? It's the woman. Just that nameless woman. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Sometimes it takes absolutely reaching rock bottom to realize you are not in control. You are not in the right place to cause us to wake up and return to obedience and find our identity in Christ. You have to understand Naomi's plight was very bad here. As a widow, living in exile in a foreign land, she faced almost certain death from starvation. That was what she was looking forward to. This was a society very different than our own. Women were supported by their families. They did not have careers. There was no career option. Naomi's age by this time, having been there 10 years, it would suggest that her parents are dead. So she could not return to her father's house, which was customary for widows. She's too old to remarry. As I said, she has no opportunity for a job. She can't support herself. There's no provision of welfare. There's no food that's going to be available to take care of an Israelite woman in Moab. They didn't like the Israelites. She was in a very perilous position with no help in sight. But you remember where the help is, right? The remedy, but God. We should love those two words, but God. Do you remember who the main character of the story is? It is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, always faithful God. That's the main character. He's always our hope. He's our hope today. We start off spiritually in the very same condition that Naomi was physically at this point. We are destined for death. We have no ability to save ourselves. We are sojourning in a foreign land. And Ephesians 2 says it this way. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You can actually read that verse by verse and kind of apply it to what happened with Elimelech and Naomi. But we're in the same boat. But let's stick with the old covenant. Let's look at another example. Take a little detour and see how God works to save his people who can never save themselves. He's always faithful. He's always faithful. And he never changes how he works, even through our suffering. There was a day prior to Naomi's time when a great famine came upon the land. Not just the promised land, but the world. And she should know the story. It happened in the days of Jacob, also known as Israel, right? The father of the 12 tribes. Joseph was one of his children. And he was uh, first conspired against by his brothers. They were going to murder him, but instead they sold him into slavery. And he was ultimately thrown into prison for a crime he did not commit. In fact, he did not commit the crime because he was faithful to God. He would say, how can I sin against my God? As he was living in a foreign land as a slave. But he was thrown into prison. And no matter his suffering... He remained faithful. Why, we do not know, except that he knew God. And God kept working out his plan to save his people. In Genesis 41, while Joseph remained in prison, just one more stage in a life that was marked by nothing but betrayal and persecution and suffering and no end in sight, God caused Pharaoh to have a series of dreams that Pharaoh could not Interpret And Joseph was remembered and he was called out of prison and he interpreted these dreams and they pointed to a massive and lengthy famine that was going to come upon the land. God had used Joseph, sold into slavery, thrown into prison, being there, not only to point Pharaoh toward the imminent death if preparations were not made, but God placed it in Pharaoh's heart to appoint Joseph over the preparations, and over the distribution of food. Now you can fast forward in the story. The famine has come upon the land. It is two years since there has been food. And Israel's children were starving. They would die. But God. They would have died, but God. They didn't know it. But though these brothers had sinned, and they believed that they really did murder their brother, God was superintending every circumstance In life, in this story, good decisions in bad. We remember those famous words at the end of Genesis. You you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph could have been bitter. Think about it, being in his shoes. The suffering is tremendous. His life was faithful, yet it was full of nothing but tragedy and betrayal. And he could have turned from God, and he could have lost his identity, but he knew God. He trusted in God's goodness and his faithfulness, and he understood that God works his plan through our suffering. So listen to what he said, Genesis 45, 4 through 8. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. I'm not sure I would ever let them off the hook, not that easy. Do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. 
For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He's always at work. He's always at work to preserve and save his people, to sanctify us in our life. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes. He's immutable. Every one of us, we were born children of wrath. We were dead in our sins. We weren't seeking God. There was no hope but God. Let's finish that Ephesians passage. Verse 4. Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God. He's the actor. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have an identity. This is your identity. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Park the pride to the side. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. But God, he acts. Salvation has always come by and through and for the glory of God. Everything is his to start with. We are temporarily here, stewards of the blessings that he gives us, but everything's his. He's always at work in the world, no matter whether or not we see it. This is the very notion of living by faith, not by sight. It is, as Romans 11.36 says of our glorious Savior, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory, not us. But it can be extraordinarily challenging to see God at work. It can be hard to see God at work when we make choices and then suffer the consequences of those choices. That can be really hard, but we know we've made the choice. And how many of us have prayed, God, please get me out of this. Maybe none of you. I, I've said that too many times in my life. Can you just take this stuff away? But it was my doing. That's not as bad as it gets, though. It's much harder when it seems the path that we walk has been chosen for us. Think of our people in these historical narratives. Joseph never woke up as a 17-year-old and said, you know what I want to do today? I want to be thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery. I hope someday I'll end up in prison where I'm rotting away, and then maybe God will use me. Nobody who prays for God to use them, by the way, ever thinks to themselves what they're praying. What if he used you like he used Joseph? You ready for that one? When you ask that, it's not all glory. Naomi never woke up. She never decided, today what I want is to live through a great famine. I want to worry about whether I can eat. I want to fear for my own starvation. And she never decided, after her husband took her to Moab, I sure wish he would die today and leave me here a widow with two sons. And we know that having two sons that were now married, she never thought to herself, today's the day. It's been ten years. Today's the day I hope they die. I want to be a widow. I want to be destitute. I want to be doomed to death. Nobody decides today that they will have a terminal disease. They don't wake up and say, I hope that I get cancer today. That would be a wonderful thing. Nobody wakes up and says, I hope that I can be disabled. 
That's what I want more than anything else. Or I hope that I suffer a lifelong health issue that keeps me from having an ordinary life the way people define it. It's much harder when we don't get to decide and create our own consequences, but we have to remember, God never promises in Scripture that believers will be immune from suffering and sorrow in a world that is corrupted by sin. That is to come. That is the future hope and glory that we look forward to. Job knew this more than anyone. And he would say, man is born to trouble. Coming into this world corrupted by sin, you will experience suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will suffer. Romans 5, 3-5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's a truth you will see flowing throughout the entirety of Scripture. And this should be your constant warning against the false gospel that gets preached. Come to Jesus. All your problems will go away. Life will be easy. Your kids will do exactly what you want them to do. Your husband or wife, they'll, they'll just operate in that perfect way. A husband will love his wife like Christ loved the church, and a woman will love her husband and submit to him, and it, oh, it'll be perfect, because you believe in Jesus. It'll be done for you. But that's not the promise. Let me note two things on those passages before we move on. That suffering, that persecution mentioned in the Second Timothy passage, what is that based on? That is based on your desire to follow Christ. Now, some people may be blessed in this life, But I would always be careful here, because there are many who will profess belief in Jesus. They will even sometimes come to church when it's raining, but they will never suffer. They will never feel persecuted. They will never feel like they have to forego an opportunity in life, because their stronger desire is actually to pursue entertainment and comfort and security and opportunities that the world presents to them. You could say that is what Elimelech did. Elimelech saw the suffering that he faced and he decided to go to Moab. That's not our choice today in the West, thankfully. Not many of us are going someplace and doing things because we're afraid of starving. We do it for a career or sports or entertainment or just to get more things. We cannot possibly have enough things in the West. Romans 5, that had this tremendous description of growth in Christian character. It's laid out for us. It culminates in truly knowing the love of God. Really understanding the love of God. But it doesn't begin with blessing. In that passage, it begins with understanding God's sovereignty and His providence, His hand always at work carrying us through in moments of great suffering. We can't avoid it. We still live in corruptible bodies subject to disease and ultimately death. And we live in the world corrupted by sin, and we bear the consequences like everyone else. You cannot allow your suffering in life to establish an identity. You can't identify with these things. You can't dwell on it as if you're experiencing abandonment from God or get angry with God. My goodness, God owes you nothing. You rebel against Him from day one. No, what we should do in our suffering is ask in our hurt, how can we glorify God? 
We can't see it because it's dark in front of us in those moments, but we know that God is with us. And He is at work in us. And His plan will be fulfilled through us to reach others and bring them to eternal salvation. Because this life is just for a moment. Paul suffered. And if you suffer yourself from anything, you should internalize these verses. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Where God says to him, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. I don't need you to be strong. You don't need a perfect life. You need to rely on Christ. And Paul then says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. I want you to listen hard here and say, are you? Are you content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, with calamities in your life? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Life is a road we walk. But we are to walk by the Spirit in this life, by faith in Jesus Christ. We are beholden to the grace of God to direct the outcomes. We don't always get to do that. Our faith needs to be in His sovereignty and His goodness. In His goodness. You can think, as Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. You choose how you react in all of your circumstances in life. Blessings and sufferings. Naomi had choices. And there is hope for Naomi here because we worship a God who grants repentance that leads to life. Acts eleven eighteen, Repentance that leads to life. So what does Naomi do? Verse 6, she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. And he had given them food. That is good news. God's mercy abounds. God's grace abounds. Because you remember the trip to Moab is marked by something that plagues all of humanity. Elimelech and his family, they they wanted the blessings that come from God, food and sustenance in their cases, but they wanted that without the repentance and the faith that God requires. And that drives so many. But God mercifully acted on his own, stepped in, And he visited his people and he brought the famine to an end and he fed his people and he providentially ensured that Naomi in the fields of Moab learned of this. God had lifted the famine. It is through hardship that his grace often becomes most evident. It's our times of affliction, our times of suffering, that we can often see God's gracious provision so much easier if we will turn from our rebellion and turn toward him in obedience Uh, this is what the psalmist wrote about. The the road is not meant to be easy. We read this a few weeks ago, Psalm 119, 67. Before I was afflicted, in a time when I was blessed, when life was easy, before I suffered, before I was afflicted, I went astray. I could do it all. But now I keep your word. Now I see the beauty of God. Because in my afflictions, I see His grace. The affliction creates a circumstance that makes you choose, allows you to choose your course. You can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You can trust Him. You can follow Him in obedience. You can join His church. You can surround yourself and live as members of His body. Or you can run through the wide gate 
Now, you can dance through the wide gate saying, I believe in a Jesus, just like many, and you will follow the path that leads only to eternal destruction. That is his warning. Enter by the narrow gate. The narrow gate is Jesus Christ. Place your faith in him. Follow him. You get a glimpse here, back to our story, of the path that Naomi will take. She doesn't have many options. What are her choices? Die or go to Israel? God didn't leave her a lot. It appears that God couldn't leave her a lot. He took her husband and she stayed. The sons weren't married. They could go back. She didn't get a lot of choices. She's not in the clear. She sees that God has provided for his people. She must go back. She must eat. Is there any hint of repentance in the text? No. None. Zero. Not yet. So what are you meant to see? If there's no repentance, what are you meant to see? Well, God's not coin-operated, right? He doesn't wait for us to insert the repentance coin and then he spits out whatever blessing. He's not a genie in the bottle. God acts of his own accord. His providence is always there. What you should begin to see in this story is the amazing providence of God. His superintending work over all circumstances of daily life. He is guiding both natural events, right? Lifting the famine and historical events. What's happening in the life of this ordinary family. All toward his purpose. And since you can see the end from the beginning, because there's only four chapters here and everybody pretty much knows the story of Ruth, you already know that God's divine purpose in this story was not just to call Naomi back to Israel. It was to reach another woman. It was to reach another convert and to bring her back and set the stage for the birth of the ancestor of King David, who would be the ancestor of Jesus Christ. So Ruth 1.7 says that she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. They went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Who's returning? Who's the they in the returning? Orpah and Ruth are Moabites. They were born and raised in a foreign land. They grew up under people who worshipped a false god. They've never set foot in the land of Judah. The promised land is granted to those God called, the Israelites and proselytes, converts to Judaism. To return to the promised land, it's a land that represents God's gracious provision of rest. You've got to know him. There's this tiny hint here, not a big one. But it's worth noting, there's a tiny hint that God is working all the time, even in Naomi's life. There just might be someone else that knows God. Someone else who is giving up her identity as a foreigner and finding her identity in Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, among people she does not know. And you know the answer, Ruth. It's in the title. It's a gospel story about how God saves his people and how he fulfills his redemptive plan through the lives and events, even tragic events of ordinary people like us. He's always accomplishing his work to save a people like us and to care for us and to love us, even though we may not always understand the circumstances. He doesn't promise that we'll have ease in this life. Joseph suffered. We looked at that. And his suffering was to save Israel. Naomi lost everyone. She lost everyone dear to her. But she is, at this moment, returning to God, returning to his rest, to his purpose for her life. She doesn't know that at all yet. It's not like she's consciously doing that. And the purpose is going to be to continue a lineage that leads to the final revelation of God the Son incarnate. 
God sending his Messiah, Jesus Christ, to truly save a people through the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. And when you think you suffer, you have to remember that no one has ever suffered. No one will ever suffer like Jesus did. It is simply impossible. He was the perfect one, the Son of God, who took on the weakness of human flesh and lived among us. He came to save his people. Matthew 1.21 says he will save his people. There is no question left about it. He came to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10. He lived, we know, a perfectly obedient life. He was without sin. And he was rejected. We think we know the pain of rejection. I don't think we really do. He was our creator. All things created through him. He is sovereign over all of life. He came to suffer and give his life to save people, and he was rejected by those he came to save, many of whom would shout out, crucify him. Jesus suffered in ways that are hard for us to imagine. He gave his life for us. He died on the cross, not for his sins, but in substitution for the sins of anyone who will just believe in him, follow him, submit to him as Lord of all things, You don't get to make him Lord of your life. He he is. Whether you bow the knee or not, he is. But you can choose to submit to him as Lord. There's no halfway options. And we need to understand that. There is no ability to gain eternal blessings that are only available through Christ, through repentance and faith in him, which are then evidenced by our desires to worship him and to obey him, and to submit to him in all things. Naomi was just learning the same lessons that apply to us today. We're sinners in need of a Savior. We can do nothing to save ourselves. Christ alone can save us. Only God can provide what we need. That was what she was learning. But we know, looking backwards, that God has indeed acted graciously, mercifully, lovingly in sending his Son So that whoever believes in him shall never perish, but have eternal life. All granted to us if we will just follow Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us strength in this world to live obediently to your Son. Father, give us the desire to crowd out all of the temptations that come our way the temptations that pull at us and give us every reason to skip worship, whether it's suffering or whether it's opportunity. Lord, let us always reflect on the suffering of your Son. We're so grateful for your Word that lays these things out for us, these marvelous truths. Help us understand them, God. As we leave today, Please burn these truths into our hearts and our minds. Don't allow us to feel guiltless about finding our identity in the world and and forgetting what we have just learned. Lord, guide us and surround us with brothers and sisters in Christ who will hold us accountable, who will help us learn, who will help us grow even as we help them grow. God, we know that we live in a period of time where the world desperately needs to repent. We come confessing our sins, knowing that we are not perfect, knowing that only you save, knowing that you are faithful to forgive and 
to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. And we pray for that this morning, God. Lord, we pray on behalf of the world, too. We need your mighty hand. We need a world that is convicted by your spirit. Father, we pray for this repentance, for this turning back to your word, for a stifling of the rebellion. Lord, use us. Give us all boldness in Christ to live for him, to speak of him, to tell of your mighty works. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.